welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 10 and we're in episode 7. And today's episode is about an encounter between Jesus and a rich young man. This story is told in Matthew, Mark and Luke. We're going to take Matthew's account as the primary text in order to study this passage. And it's Matthew chapter 19 verses 16 to 30 that we're going to be looking at in a few moments. Now to give this context, it's important to look at the previous event that took place, which is also recorded in Matthew 19 verses 13 to 15. And we studied it in Luke's account in Luke 18 verses 15 to 17. This is the occasion when Jesus was traveling around and young children were brought to him for him to bless them. And this was the subject of our last episode. So if you listened in to the last episode, you'll know this story. But the two are closely connected. And as so often in studying the Gospels, it's the connections and the context that gives the best advantage for us in terms of working out the meaning. So I'm just going to quickly read that little section again, make a key comment about its conclusion, and then you'll quickly see when we move to the next story how these two things are surprisingly closely connected. So in Luke's version of the little children being brought to Jesus, in Luke 18 verses 15 to 17, we have the following statement. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, the story is partly about children and the value that Jesus puts on children. And we discussed that in the last episode. I don't want to go back over that theme again. But it also is about what we can learn from children in terms of our relationship with God. And we ended the last episode by pointing out that as Jesus is talking about children here, so we, in one sense, are children in our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, if we are born again and if we've entered into the kingdom of God. We discussed that in the last episode. And so Jesus concludes by saying that we can't receive the kingdom of God, we can't become born again, we can't enter into salvation unless we become like children in their attitudes. And so we ended the last episode by just mentioning three things that we can learn from children in their approach to adults and in how they negotiate life. One is their simplicity. The other is their trust or their faith in adults. And the third point we mentioned was their humility. They don't tend to think that they know everything. They know there's a, a lot to learn from adults. So children are usually simple, trusting and humble in their normal relationships with adults. 
especially little children, the ones that Jesus was discussing and meeting in this particular episode. So Jesus is giving here an interesting insight into how we get into the kingdom of God. And it turns out that our inner attitude is fundamental and important in that process. This is not something we've achieved. This is some attitude and approach that we have towards God. We need to approach God with simplicity, with humility and with a trusting attitude or more formally we would describe that as with faith, the the willingness to trust God for our salvation. So that's where that story ended up and Matthew has the same story in a slightly more abbreviated or shorter form in the middle of Matthew 19 in the verses that immediately come before this story. And the connection between the two is that the young man, the rich young man who approaches Jesus quite suddenly and dramatically in this story, is asking a very fundamental question about how we enter into eternal life. Or to put it in other words, how we enter into the kingdom of God. Or to put it in other terms, how we can be born again, how we can be justified, how we can be forgiven, how we can be in relationship with God. So he's asking that very key question from a very adult and a very Jewish and a very religious point of view. Jesus has already given a general answer in a different context when dealing with the children, but this man takes a fundamentally different approach, as we're going to see in just a moment. Let's read this interesting and challenging story together. Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, 
We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So who is this man who comes to Jesus and initiates a startling and challenging conversation. He's a young man. He has great wealth. And Luke chapter 18, verse 18, in describing the same person, describes him as a ruler. So we have a young man who is rich and who is influential. He's a ruler. What kind of a ruler might he be? Well, there are two obvious possibilities. He could be what's known as a synagogue ruler, someone who oversees the local synagogue. We have an example of that in Luke 8, and that is Jairus, the synagogue leader who came to Jesus on behalf of his daughter. He could be a synagogue ruler, or he could be a public official, a civil servant, or an agent of the government, and therefore a ruler in like the local district. We can't be certain which of these meanings it is, or whether it's something similar that we're not aware of. But this man was influential in society. My inclination is to think that he was a synagogue ruler, because the implication here is that He's very serious about religious matters and he's very focused on the Old Testament law. Anyway, this man comes, he's young, he's rich and he's powerful. We don't have his name, but we do sense something urgent happening when he suddenly approaches Jesus. Mark tells us a little bit more a detail in Mark 10, 17 about this man's approach in Mark's account. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him, saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So according to Mark, he ran to him and he fell down on his knees. Now here is a man in a bit of a crisis. He's young, he's rich, he's influential. He's got what's needed to make life successful as far as we can tell. But there's something going on inside him. He's a troubled young man. And he's troubled because he's not sure that he has the right relationship with God. He's willing to risk his credibility and respectability by coming to Jesus and making himself vulnerable. His question is, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a very interesting question. He must have been aware of Jesus' ministry. He must have been challenged by Jesus. He must have had a lack of assurance about his relationship with God. 
and he must have had some kind of a spiritual quest going on. But his mentality was to think that it was good works that he did that would earn justification, salvation and eternal life from God. This is a characteristic mindset of many of the Jews of Jesus' day, as we've encountered on many occasions in earlier episodes. And it's been represented to us very forcibly on many occasions by the Pharisees, whose attitude was very much concerning doing good works, obeying religious laws and gaining God's favour by such obedience. So he would have been influenced by the Pharisees and he would have been influenced by the general culture of Judaism. He would have been a reader of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And if he was a synagogue ruler, he would listen to the scriptures being read every single Sabbath day. So here is a religious man with a great question in his soul. And this rich young man represents so many people in the world today who pursue religion, whatever religion it might be. They aim to please God, however they understand him to be, and they do so through the traditions of their religion and through the religious laws that are imposed upon them. And so Jesus' response to this man is, first of all, to talk to him on his own terms. This is the force of the next bit of the discussion. He says, keep the commandments. And the man just says, which ones? He knows all the commandments. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, these commands were the central practical commands of the Ten Commandments, plus Jesus has added another one in here. So in the Ten Commandments, we have commandments numbers five to nine listed here. And the earlier ones were concerning the Sabbath day and concerning aspects of worshipping God as the deity. These are the practical ones that relate to our human relationships rather than our relationship directly with God. This is how to conduct ourselves with other people. And then Jesus adds in a command that he discusses quite a number of times in his ministry, love your neighbour as yourself, taken from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, which is a more general command about how we relate to other people. So Jesus is basically saying here, have you related well to other people in an honourable way according to the commands of Moses? And the man said, yes, I have. So this is a clue. He's a religious man. He's a devout man. He knows the commandments. He's following them. But then he asks his next question, what do I still lack? He knows in his heart there's something wrong inside. There's something missing. There's something controlling his life, there's something making his conscience uneasy, there's something blocking his relationship with God. He knows that a miracle has to happen in his heart for him to be sure that he's done enough or he's found peace with God. And then comes 
the shocking and surprising response of Jesus upon which this whole story hangs. What do I still lack? Was his question. And in verse 21, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, that means having undivided loyalty to God. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. This is a complete shock. No one would have expected Jesus to have said such a bold and direct thing. In the tradition of the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, those who had a reasonable amount of money and wealth were considered blessed by God. It was a good thing to have. But here Jesus says, sell your possessions, start to give things away, start to sell them, give the money that you get from selling your possessions to the poor. And then his second command is equally radical, if not even more radical. He said, and come follow me. Now, in this particular context, that's a very literal statement. Jesus is inviting this rich young man to make a few decisions at home, sell possessions, give the money to the poor, and then to get on the road with Jesus, with his disciples, with his other followers, and go with him on his final journey towards Jerusalem, which is nearing completion. So he's asking the man to make a sudden major change in his life, promising him that he'll have treasure in heaven. In other words, he'll be inheriting eternal life. But the indication here is that his wealth and his riches are literally blocking the way. They're controlling his life. And we find this borne out very much by the next verse. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, how did Jesus know he had great wealth? This was supernatural knowledge of the man. Nothing had been said about money. But he had a lot of money, a lot of wealth, and he didn't want to be separated from it. And so Jesus uses this situation and the man's quiet retreat back into the crowd to say to his disciples that it's hard for rich people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, riches are a real block. The wealthier you are, the more likely it is for it to be difficult for you to embrace the kingdom of God and to embrace the path of discipleship. That's a really shocking message. How can a camel go through the eye of a needle? How can something really large, a large animal, go through a tiny, tiny little space? The eye of a needle where you put the thread when you're going to sew clothes together. It's a powerful metaphor that Jesus uses there, just to say how very, very difficult it is. But, of course, he carries on to say, this may look impossible to you, but it is possible for God to save rich people. But it does take 
a miracle because riches and wealth have an extraordinary controlling power over us humans. We want to acquire them, we want to acquire wealth, and we want to hold on to it and protect it. And we'll often use very extreme measures to protect our wealth. We don't want anyone asking us to part with our wealth. And this man was certainly not willing to follow Jesus at this particular point. Now this leads us to the final section of this story where Peter, thinking through what's happened and responding instinctively and emotionally as he often does and leading the way, Peter says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So Peter can easily explain to Jesus the cost that it has been for him and for the other disciples to follow Jesus. They've left their livelihoods, their jobs, their homes. They've got an uncertain future. Opposition to Jesus is rising up. There are threats to him, threats to the disciples. Their future is unknown. They've put their trust in Jesus and they are letting go of their material security, at least for that period of their lives. And here Jesus says some remarkable things that are really encouraging and helpful to us who are the disciples of Christ and who face big challenges with material wealth and resources and what to do with them and what to believe about them. Here's Jesus's perspective. And in verse 28, he speaks specifically to the 12 disciples. Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a reference to Jesus' second coming. We've been teaching about the second coming in one recent episode. Jesus is beginning to teach about this more formally. Jesus is going to return publicly in power to this earth a long time after his death and resurrection, sometime in the future. And he's going to be sitting on his glorious throne. That's a reference to the throne of judgment. He's going to come as the judge. And of the 12 disciples, he said, you're going to sit on 12 thrones. You're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So you've taken a very humble path with me now, but you'll have a position of authority when I return. And the implication of this is that ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, which is in the process of rejecting Jesus at this point, will experience uh, God's judgment and purification at the time that Jesus returns. And the 12 disciples will play a part in that process. They will be shown to have believed correctly in Jesus the Messiah, to have put their trust in the right place, and they'll be rewarded with authority in the eternal age. Now there's a similar passage in Luke 22 verses 29 to 30 just to emphasize the point in a different context. Jesus says in the Last Supper, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging 
the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a particular promise to the 12 disciples that their costly sacrifice will be rewarded in eternity by a position of authority and respect and a vindication of the lifestyle that they have chosen. This is an important message for them because after Jesus died, rose again and ascended and the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, these 12 disciples were scattered to many different countries over the years and many of them suffered much persecution and even martyrdom. So there was a great cost to be paid, but a great reward to be looked forward to when Jesus comes again. Now, Jesus had promised rewards to the rich young man. He said, if you give your possessions away, you're going to get treasure in heaven. But that man had decided to hold on to his own material wealth. Now, verse 29 goes on to speak more generally about Christian disciples throughout the ages, which can include you and me. And he makes a promise not just to the twelve, but to all disciples. Verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. A double promise here. If your discipleship separates you from family, from home, from economic resources... In this life, you'll receive a hundred times as much in this life, and then you'll receive eternal life and heavenly reward. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, it's a realistic statement about what sometimes happens for us when we choose to follow Christ. We can be separated from family, friends, home, and our working environment sometimes in our economic resources as persecution and opposition come but he said you're going to receive a hundred times as much that's through the church through the body of Christ you'll have other close friends you'll have a spiritual family you'll have other economic resources you'll have other social networks and friendship networks and these networks will be not just in one place but wherever you travel and the body of Christ exists then you will have a point of connection and relationship with them that's basically what he's saying and that applies even today and many people have this extraordinary experience that as their own family turn against them for their faith in situations where that happens then they are embraced and received by the family of the church, which, of course, is such a big family that it could even be a hundred times as much, which is obviously a kind of metaphorical, numerical statement, but it's telling us the richness of what God will allow us to receive in this life. Even though, as Mark 10.30 says, this will come with persecutions and with difficulties. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to find real blessing in this life and even more blessing in inheriting eternal life. And so it turns out that the first 
will be last and the last will be first. This is a reference primarily to the economically strong and the economically weak, the rich and the poor. The basic point here is many people who appear successful in this life because they're rich will turn out to have missed the opportunity to enter into eternal life. They are now first, but they will be last. And many people who are relatively poor now because they've chosen the path of discipleship will be rich in God's kingdom when Christ comes again. This is a remarkable story. The command given to this rich young man was a one-off command in a one-off situation. It's not a general rule. But it is really helpful to think about in terms of those of us who may be battling with wanting to hold on to an excess uh, amount of wealth that we don't really need. Materialism and wealth can control us. So it's best to identify following Jesus as far more rewarding, even though it comes at some considerable cost in this life. So this is a sobering and a powerful and a significant passage that sheds further light on one of Jesus's great themes, which is the path of discipleship. And so much material in this part of the story and in the series that have come just beforehand shed light on different aspects of the path of discipleship, the path that I'm encouraging you to tread strongly and confidently by faith. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.